So we say yes, so we say yes. Is anybody out there saying yes to God? Thank you, Lord. We bless you this day, Holy Jesus. We love you, love you, love you, love you, love you, God. We bless your holy name. We thank you, God, that you are God of heaven and earth. That little birdies don't fall to the ground without you knowing it, God. We bless you, Lord. We thank you for redemption. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for your spirit being upon us, that you would call us for days like these, God, that we could serve you, Lord. We want to serve you and glorify you in these days. And so we would ask that you would pour your spirit out this morning. We invite you, God, to come into our midst to encourage, enlighten, revelate, convict, whatever needs doing in our lives, God, so we can walk in absolute fullness, absolute surrender, absolute, God, uh, accomplishing the great exploits that you have uh, ordained and even reserved for these days. God, that we would be those people, Lord. We ask you to open your word to us which you do so faithfully, Lord. Amen. Okay, welcome everybody. Last week, as I was getting started, I got up super early Saturday morning, as I usually do, and I got all these notices coming right from Israel that war had broken out. And so we interrupted our Daniel teaching, which is a progressive through to chapter-by-chapter chapter teaching, which has a lot to do with what's going on in these days and in future days. In front of that, I just sort of came in there and addressed certain things that... I will impart a dress again this morning. I said last week, I said, we'd be spiritually tone deaf to not address what's happening in Israel right now. And in fact, and I'm not saying it as a rebuke to anyone, I'm simply saying that the church is accountable to not be tone deaf in these days. These are not days as usual. These are actually days as predicted and they're days as unusual. These are the days that we're walking in right now, and so we're not to exaggerate them, but at the same time, we see things happening, they're lining up, we're called to be God's voice in these days. Prophetically, the book of Daniel is spot on to everything that we are going to discuss this morning, and also the teachings of this ministry have been in this place for years. So this is not a surprise to the last 20 years or 25 years or so I've been teaching on the conclusion of the age, so... I, I don't even pretend that I understand it all. It's not intended to be fully understood, much of it until it occurs. But there's things unfolding right now. And more importantly for the saints is how do we act? How do we respond? How do we live? How do we pray in these days? So that's where we're going to go. The conflict in Israel is ongoing and it is escalating. And anyone studying scripture would expect that. And so when you hear people say, oh, let's pray for things to go back to normal or something like that, that might be well intended, but that's not going to happen. There's a scripture in Isaiah 14 that's extremely sobering, and it's talking about the conclusion of the age, which is violent, and the challenge is, it says, who will annul that? So we're not going to pray God into saying, you know, that's a really better plan that the church has, and they have a lot of things on their agendas right now, so I will either delay or interrupt or dial things down. We're, we're invited into his will. And we will find his presence in his will. And that is completely uncomfortable. We have a comforter, but it's uncomfortable in the will of God. Because his ways simply aren't our ways. And he's not here just to make us miserable. But a lot of the discomfort is to draw us closer into the place of intimacy with him. So when you make the, uh, the, the divine mistake of saying your will be done, you're saying your will be done. That's the whole point. 
is that you're saying your will be done on earth. You're saying the only one, the only place I could actually control his will being accomplished or not is in me. You can't even do that in your spouse or your kids or anything else. So when you say your will be done, you're opening yourselves up to the will of God being revealed in your life and then you being held accountable to do his will. And most of our time on earth is actually spent learning that. Now the, the conclusion of the age and the conclusion of your days, it's like, just want to know he did his will. So we have close friends in Israel, both saved and unsaved. We have a, a lot of friends from the uh, you know kingdom, um, Messianic believers, Jewish believers, and also Gentile believers who are, have been called into Israel. And we also have a lot of secular friends there because I'm in an industry that has an inventor community in Israel. And we've had dinner with people, and we have a lot of people who have interesting contacts <coughs> there, including Mossad, to find out I was under investigation because they thought I might believe in Jesus. So we couldn't get citizenship. So we couldn't get citizenship. But we hear, and 50% of the Jews on earth are in America, and they are calling. They are reaching out these days. They are moved. The work that's being accomplished on earth is moving the Jewish people to salvation. And I'm, I was going to say it later, but I'll say it now. So I got up this morning, and it was nearly inaudible from the Lord, because I have been, you know, it's, this has been processing in my spirit for years, but then months, now weeks, and since last week, and knowing what we were going to do this morning, and this morning the Lord said, the Jewish people need to get saved. Israel needs to get saved. Part of praying for the peace is praying salvation. There's no peace without Jesus. And so we have to be careful we don't soft soap or sand off some of the edges of what's happening on earth in these days. Because these are tough days. And you know I've taught on Jacob's trouble. These are days that are sure pointing to situations that have not yet occurred. And if you know anything about my teachings, I always coined a phrase, or I don't know if I coined it originally, but HHY hasn't happened yet. Jesus interrupted himself at the Sermon on the Mount and said every jot and tittle, every little punctuation mark, every little hook and little feature on the Hebrew letters, everything is going to get fulfilled. And then he warns us against uh, ignoring that. So another key to understanding prophecy is just because something, if something hasn't been done, first of all, it's our accountability and our invitation to see whether things have been done. Because just because we don't know of a historic event doesn't mean it didn't occur. But at the same time, there's no place in Scripture where we're ever told that if something has occurred, it won't occur again unless the Lord says it won't. We know he will never destroy the world by a flood. Again, he told us he wouldn't. But there's other things that have occurred and they seem to be, you know, the destruction of the temple has some parallels to the destruction of, the you know, of what's going to happen at the conclusion of the age. And so a lot of things are prophetically ambiguous Simply don't, we don't run with a spreadsheet or an old triple A, uh, you know, triptych with someone had circled off everything and then we think, okay, we got the whole plan and now I'm ready to go. He says, no, that's not it. I, the call of God is to a place of intimacy for his leading every given day. And it's going to get more critical now than ever. And I believe the grace that will be there for us to be more obedient now than ever because that's going to be our success. Everything that's really truth should uh, be confirmed with truth. We want to do that. It's okay to fact check. I read a book recently, I told you, Return of the Gods by Jonathan Kahn. I believe the man, I see the anointing that's on him. At the same time, I fact check certain things because it's good to fact check. He was spot on. There's a lot of things that are hard to hear these days, but they're spot on. 
And this is why, most importantly, is the Word of God which testifies to itself. And that has to be our resource, not my teaching or someone. The teachers are accountable to, be, to speak clearly and accurately and succinctly and in alignment with what they understand as being the Word of God. But at the end of the day, it's on you to have the Word of God in you, bubbling up and bubbling out. So you can sign up for Avner's uh, newsletter. It's free. It's, it's really good. And we agree on almost everything. And over the years, you know, we've spoken into each other's lives. We have that place, and we've both been blessed by that. But I'm just saying he's a good resource. Because what's happening, a lot of it is right now, it's all about, um, and I did a teaching, which was one of the long, biggest downloads, the largest downloads, and it was on truth. It was the battle of truth. It was fake news I, I, I spoke about. It. Fake news began in the garden, started there, and it's only going to increase over the years as it goes on. It's going to increase to the point of really a, a madness, a level of madness where you're going to look at things saying, is this true or is it not true? We know the Word of God is true, and we're also called to be in the Word so that we avoid the pitfalls of deception that we've been warned about throughout both Testaments. Almost every one of the epistles warns you of false teachers, uh, uh, spots in your love feasts. Uh, Jesus talked about not being deceived. Uh, Paul speaks of not being deceived. Peter speaks of not being deceived. The, the lie that wants to come out, whether it's presented as false history or who owned what land or, or when something happened, we have to be very sensitive to that these days. And we also know that Jesus is truth. He didn't just speak truth. He didn't just write truth. He is truth. We'll, we're going to look at that in a minute. So, you know, some of the uh, things that I will not cover today, but I'm sending you my link. I'm not campaigning for you to do anything. I'm simply saying I have a, about 100, almost 190 podcasts right now recorded that are that a lot of them, almost every one of them, covers a lot of these topics and some of the some of the subject matter was. Pentecost and the outpouring, learning from Balaam, Gog and his role in the end times plan of God. It was an Ezekiel teaching that went back to Gog in Numbers. Jacob's trouble, the battlefield of truth and lies, Passover, which is critical, and the millennium, which uh, I think was actually the greatest number of downloads because people are, God's speaking to our spirits right now, and there's things that we would have said, you know, in the past, those are like important, but not on my personal radar. Suddenly, they're coming onto our radar because God's calling us to be a sober voice for him in these days. He, wants, he needs a voice on earth. He chose us to be his voice. He was salt and light. He said, now you're the salt and the light. And much of what the church says really does not pertain to these things. So as much as we can, we want this in us because we want to be speaking that truth. So once again, it's not going to be all covered. Jesus said this in John 8. 44, you are the, he's speaking to religious people with a lot of format, a lot of formula, a lot of liturgy. They had a lot of culture. They had a lot of things that are still going forward in the Jewish faith. And it didn't work then, and it's not working now. The church, of course, has come up with their own stuff that never worked and isn't working now. And God has always had a remnant of people who are willing to say, God, I want you in me. And he's always moved in that manner. So Jesus is rebuking these people because he loves them. And he says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. That's a harsh word. It's not friendly. It's not, gee, he should be speaking gold. Isn't he the Savior? He's speaking gold here. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. And we could sit around for hours and talk about where did the resources come from, who generates these things, where, you know, who's, who's causing, is God causing all these things? Is he allowing all these things? Those are some things I have opinion about. Some of them are not specific lines where we could say this is God who said make it happen or times when God will allow things to happen and then hold people accountable for those things. But, in, you know, we use it all the time, but really, in a way, it's above our pay grade. We already know more than we're doing. We already know what's happening on earth, and we already know what will happen. So here's Jesus talking about Satan, talk, saying he's full of lies. Every lie comes from him. Jesus cannot lie, the elder John tell, told us. And here in John 14, 6, Jesus said to someone, they said, well, how am I going to know the way? This is like really a minefield. And he says, I am the way, I am the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. For our purposes, that includes the Jewish people. No one is automatically saved by a bloodline. And people have been so, you know, God has a tremendous uh, love for the Jewish people, tremendous covenant bond to the Jewish people, but they're not saved. My people were not saved because of the bloodline. And I often say this, that it's a, it's a priority without partiality. It's Jew first and a Gentile, both for correction and for blessing. He set it up. You can argue with him if you want, but we are dealing with, and you, we've all been saved by a Jewish Jesus, the one and only Messiah for Jew and Gentile alike. And there's no other door into salvation except through what occurred on the cross and through the man Jesus. And this is a tough word for Jewish people to hear. And personally, I can say, and I've had good fortune in leading a bunch of Jewish people to the Lord and uh, happening now also. And, and a great thing to say to them is Jesus is Jewish. Not only was, he wasn't simply raised, but he is. He's Jewish. This is not, and one of the lies of Satan to a Jew is that if you accept Jesus, you've abandoned your Jewishness. It's a lie. It's a lie. We were asked a question one time as we were getting interrogated in Israel at a uh, citizenship meeting, and, and they said, Hi, why did you get married in a church? And it was like sort of curveball oh. thrown to us, and I <laughs> quickly said, I was not practicing my Judaism at that time. I thought, oh, that was pretty cool. That was a good answer. Thank you, Lord. I wasn't. <laughs> okay, so... So where and who is truth? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And a final revelation to the entire world, which is not yet. So we know this is upcoming. This is in Revelation. Revelation 19, starting at verse 12. His eyes were like a He had a vision. And so he's saying his eyes were, his eyes are. But his eyes, as he saw him, his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself, meaning he had a personal, intimate relationship with the Lord, just like you have a name. That is only between you and God. He, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, which implies that's not his blood. It implies the war at the conclusion of the age. 
and his name is called the Word of God. So the whole concept of, oh, I'm a prayer warrior and I don't know the word, or I'm a word warrior but I don't pray much, we got to get over that nonsense. We got to get, we, you're not supposed to be walking with a limp. <laughs> you got to walk on those two feet, okay? He was clothed, okay? And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword that with it he should strike the nations. This is massive. I refer you to Psalm 2, which we won't cover, but we've, we've covered many times in the past. It has to do with a violent, divine takeover of every kingdom on earth by a God who will rule in love with a rod of iron. That's the storyline. And he himself will rule with a rod of iron. There you go. Thanks, Lord, that worked. <laughs> now, and also it tells us here, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He's not, it's not simply a wedding when he returns. There is one, but he's not talking about that here. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. This is for everybody to know this name. King of kings and Lord of lords. He means world ruler. It's not just titles. He's the king over all kings. He's over industry, corporate leaders, he's king over rich men and poor men, king over the ones literally uh, in walking in front of an army. He's the king of kings. And it, that will happen, the world will see that. It's when every knee will bow. So this is upcoming, this is a stay tuned. So the Revelation prophecy takes us back to Zechariah, which I heartily recommend that you read at least chapters 12 through 14. They're really solid. Zechariah was presented as a na'ar. The word they use in Hebrew is basically prepubescent. So meaning like not yet shaving. He was a young kid having this profound revelation about the conclusion of the age. It's the same word they used to describe little Samuel when he was uh, in living with uh, Eli, the goofy prophet. So Na'ar is a young man. And that's why the book is so amazing, because he's so sincere saying to the, the messengers from heaven, what's that mean? What's that mean? You know what this means? No, what's that mean? It's because he wasn't hung up <laughs> like us. So he was able to say, well, and God says, let me tell you what it means. I love you. Love you, kid. And I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem this is a sovereign work of God that is not yet happening, but much has to happen prior to this to get them to the place of even crying out for his return. For them to say, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai, he says, you won't see me again until you say that. This squeezing work that we're seeing now is to get the Jews to say that. And when, here's what he's going to do. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication then. At that time, when he's here, they will look on me whom they pierced. So they will see what was accomplished for the payment of their sin. It's not just coming back saying, yeah, that was really a tough thing, but we're over it. He's saying, no, you're going to look and see the price that was paid. They're going to look on him whom they pierced. And what's their response going to be? First, they're saved. But they're going to be mourning. They're going to realize it. And if you've lived in darkness or sin of any kind, there's a, there you, whenever you look back there, you mourn. Yeah. You look back on your sin and you mourn. I think of all the damage that I did on earth. You know, and I, I know I'm forgiven, but at the same time, you mourn over those things. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. And he's likening it to the day that... King Josiah was, was killed in battle. It was a 
turning point day in the history of Israel. He, in many ways, was a messiah for Israel at the time. He says, he's the only thing he could, you know, we're being told is by heaven, the people are going to be mourning like Israel mourned when Josiah was slaughtered in battle. In that day, there shall be a great morning in Jerusalem, like the, like the morning at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo, and the land shall mourn. And he is dealing with every single person. This is not a collective mourn. It's corporate. In this, actually, it's, it's everybody, but it's individual. No one's hiding behind a pastor, a prophet, a teacher, a spouse. No one. He says, and the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and the wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi. This is the priestly tribe. These are the prophets. These are the rulers of the land. Everybody, the family of Shimei by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain. This is a remnant work that is going to take place. Remnant means most of the people will not make it. There's a whosoever will that's attached to the whole story. There's a free will story in here, but most of the people will say no to God. Smith Wigglesworth used to say that. He said the bigger issue than whosoever will is all the whosoever wants. The ones who will either go so, or go so far, but no more. I've paid too much already. I'm tired. I'm disappointed. I don't understand you, and I don't agree with how you're doing things. I'll do it my way. That's not going to cut it in these days. These are days when... Fortunately, in Hebrew, the word is ken, which is really easy. The word is yes. That's the key. Ken, 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 ken. I was at a meeting one time, a room full of pastors, and this old lady, this amazing saint of God, Fuchsia Pickett, said, the key to a successful life with the Lord, and everybody's like sitting on the edge of their chair. She goes, is always say yes <laughs> and never say no. That's what he wants to hear from us. So we say yes now, Lord. Yes. We say yes to you, God. We say yes to your will. My friend Kevin Posh wrote a song, Wheel of God, which was very, very powerful, very, very prophetic. And um, with his okay, I used that at the beginning of the podcast. It says, so we say yes, Lord. We say yes. We say yes. Is anybody out there saying yes to God? And we, have to, we want to have a yes in our spirits in these days. And the land shall mourn, we did that. In same day, in that day, Zechariah 13, in that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness, which implies up until that day, sin and uncleanness are going to be permeating Israel. It's happening now. Don't, because there's a call on the place and the land, do not think that God will ever overlook sin. You could read Amos 3 and get that very clear in your spirit, but sin has to get purged from the land because he's going to dwell there and he will not become unholy. He became unholy for mankind once, bearing our sin, but he will not become unholy. So the call has to be a fountain open for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, which is warrior, his warrior name, his warrior title, it's Yahweh Tzivaot, it's king of the universe and commander of the armies of heaven, the hordes of heaven. I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall no longer be remembered. Also, I will cause the prophets and unclean spirit to depart from the land. He's talking about the false prophets, but also we won't have a need for prophecy at that time because it'll be fulfilled. 
But this has to do with the false prophets that have deceived. They're deceiving now. We have to be careful as saints that we are not false prophets. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of spiritual speculation that sounds good. There's people quoting Mishnah and Talmud and, and ancient scripts that sound good because they're ancient and they were lies then and they are lies now. And this is why we have the Word of God. And it will line up. We just want to be careful. We want to be careful. We want to be prayerful. God gives you 20 words to say. Don't say 21. Don't say 21. Don't add. Don't embellish. And at the same time, don't minimize and don't discount. Jeremiah 23, if you have any kind of prophetic calling in your life, live in chapter 23 of Jeremiah for a good long time. It would get you to the place where you say, I don't want nothing to do with that ministry. I'll take care of the kids. I'll, I'll pick people up. I'll clean tables, diapers. I'll do anything. I'll preach. I don't want the ministry of prophet. But he says at the conclusion of that, he says, if you get a word, you better speak it. So the answer again is yes. And the correction to the prophets, and I say that to us because much is going to happen. Joel tells us it's going to be a spirit of prophecy poured out on many who've never prophesied in their lives. And don't say no to God. But look what Jeremiah says. And this was days leading up to the 70-year captivity. Uh, Jeremiah 6, they have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying peace, peace, when there's no peace. We have to be careful here that our words are not temporary comforts, putting a, a Band-Aid on a, on a tumor. There's things that have to get addressed. Sin has to get addressed. We have friends who are abandoning holiness and going into sin right now, and you're not doing someone a favor by not addressing sin in these days. It's not love. The accountability of teachers, preachers, prophets, singers, songwriters, speakers, it's almost unimaginable. You want to write things that don't just rhyme. We have to be careful there. I've sat into breakout sessions in worship conferences where some People have warned anointed song leaders, just because it rhymes doesn't mean it's right. Be careful these days. Just be careful. Fact check. Fact check your lyrics. Because people take lyrics and if it goes in their spirit, and then next thing you know, they're singing goofy stuff. You don't want that. Don't be part of it. Zechariah 14. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, meaning you win. For, and here's an incredible truth that is offensive. He's going to gather the nations to do battle against Jerusalem. I will gather. All, how many in the nations? All. You can go to the New King James. You can go to the NIV. You can go to the NASB. Some of them have places where it says, though all the nations, others say, I will gather. It looks like every nation will be represented. Some will be in full force and fully demonized. Others will have pockets of salvation. And some nations, it might be a minority of people. But he says, I'm going to gather everybody, all nations. And what are they going to do? They're going to, now, why would God gather the nations to come against Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem's not saved yet. This is a amazing divine dynamic tension that he's established here. One is to keep us prayerful, but also because he's, he, he requires that his beloved Jewish people come to grips with the fact that they're not saved. They're, not, they're chosen, but they still have to get saved. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women raped. 
Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. These are future events in part being modeled even right now. Then, and we know this hasn't happened yet, H-H-Y, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will physically stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two by the Abafo earthquake from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Going down to verse 9, and here's, this is amazing. The Jewish services are supposed to start with Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. It's called the Shema. It's spectacular. It's anointed. The, the word Echad has to do with the completeness and wholeness of God. And the Jewish people were called to be Echad in the first place. The saints of God are called to be Echad as we walk and surrender our lives to him. A lot of the healing comes when the more we surrender to God. I've said it before. Salvation does not set you free. Abiding in his word sets you free. Knowing the truth sets you free. Salvation brings you in, brings you into that place of intimacy. That's why, like Paul said, you're bound by your own affections. A lot of saints are not set free. That's why we have counseling sessions and support groups and all that. I'm not knocking the people or condemning them. There's a place for that. But the reality is when you come, into, come to grips with the fullness of surrender, you get set free. Jesus came to set us free. He says, if you continue in my word. So this Hoachad thing is amazing because he's saying, and it shall, in that day, it shall be the Lord is Echad and his name Echad. He is going to fulfill the Shema for the Jewish people. They're going to get this verse. This is in their scriptures. These are Jewish scriptures. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south to Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in a place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress. The people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction. Now we're seeing destruction right now. These verses have yet to occur and they will. The people shall dwell in it. No longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. If you've ever been there, you know they're not safely inhabited yet. So we know God is sovereign. And we know a little birdie doesn't fall to the ground without him knowing it. That's clear. So everything that's going on, God already knows. Much of what we know is that there's trouble happening in the land right now. And one of the things that's interesting, how much time do we spend complaining to God, telling him things he already knows? It's okay to recite these things back to him because we have the model of holy people throughout the whole book who exactly did that. It's okay to dialogue with God. This is a talking relationship he's trying. He's not looking to see how many times you repeat a phrase or anything like it. He wants you to dialogue with him. That's the reasoning together. That's the amazing intimacy of the relationship he's called us to. That's laying your hands on your Bible saying, God, I really don't understand this and I'm struggling with this and these things that happened in my life, they don't seem to fit and I need, I, I'm hurting. I spent about almost two hours in the garage yesterday with a dear man of God whose wife, at 35 years old, died this year. Believer. I had to wrestle with the Lord. He's okay, but he lost his wife. And there are things we don't understand, and there's things we're not going to understand. He doesn't, we will know when we get there in the sweet by and by. What is not known, when and how Satan conspires on his own to drive wicked people into wicked deeds, 
or when God himself might cause things to happen that go against our Western understanding of how a good God might operate. And his ways are not our ways. And that's a painful truth to us, which is why saying yes again is so critical. Because it's not an issue of being in agreement necessarily or even understanding why the Lord's doing something. It's simply saying yes. So what's happening now? God is purposely and sovereignly shaking heaven and earth. You knew I was going to bring these verses up because I do every week. And the people of the world, the Jews and the Gentiles, they need to repent. They need to re people need to repent now. We need to repent. I've taught on Sarah Cynthia Sylvia Stout, who would not take the garbage out. It was the old Shel Silverstein poem. It was hilarious. But it had to do with a woman, who, a young girl, who wouldn't take the garbage out. It piled up to the sky with pie and everything rhymed. It was real funny. But at the end of the poem, she dies. And so God's called us into this place every day of repenting. Take the garbage out. Stand in front of the Lord and say, Lord, here I am again. That's exactly what, it's not a, it's, it, it, that's the whole storyline here is that we're saved so that we could be fully brought into an understanding of how we're living our lives and we could just keep coming without condemnation. That, it's glorious. So these verses, he says, yet once more, it's a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake how many of the nations and what will happen, all nations, and what's the result? This is the good news. They shall come to the hemdah. They shall come to the desire of the nations. It's a nickname for the Savior. He's the hemda of the nations. He's the desire of the heart of man. It has to do with a description of the Antichrist where it says he's not going to, uh, he's not going to be uh, swayed by the desire of women. It doesn't mean he's homosexual. He says he's not going to be, it's the hemda. It's the desire. It's the same word though. It has to do with an intimacy. It might even be pointing that he's not going to be swayed by the, by the Christ. So what is, what is Haggai, the punchline, this is crazy. He says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. And then he goes on, he says, it's going to be a, for a ladder temple and I'm going to bring peace, says warrior God. And then what's crazy is when you look at the book of Hebrews, which is all about us, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together and so much the more as we see the day approaching, as we see all the not going backwards, not giving up, not having an evil heart of unbelief, coming with confidence before the throne of grace, understanding what happened with the prophets before us, the ones who were even sawn in half, of whom the world was not worthy. After the whole story of the book of Hebrews, which is a strong word to discourage New Testament believers, the writer of Hebrews, the punchline is Haggai 2, 6 and 7. He says, I'm going to shake the daylights out of the world so that what cannot be shaken will remain. So why is it shaking? Here, here's why it's shaking right now. God's doing a test. He's doing a test. And that's the only place for Israel and the Israel of God, meaning the saints, you know, that's it's the only place it's really going to be a peace for a real, the real peace for Jerusalem is when the Prince of Peace is here. So we pray for that. It's Maranatha. It's come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we prepare ourselves so that we're ready to participate in all that the Lord's called us to in these days. And again, there's no retirement in the kingdom. You could be 120, there's no retirement in the kingdom, which is actually spectacular. Because you know, you can't make 40-year port in 10 years. And the call to you, if you've been called young and now you're old, thank you, Jesus, for the work that he's been able to do in your life and accomplish. Even with us kicking and scratching many times, he is so faithful to us. So the heart and the words and the ministry of the prophets of God, okay, it's always been compassion. This is very important because a lot of the things that we're told are harsh things. 
And we're not to sit here beating our chest because what we spoke, taught, or prophesied or sang came to pass, and now we're validated. It's a terrible attitude. And God will correct the prophets, preachers, teachers exactly for that. Our hearts should be breaking for the troubles that are happening on earth, even when we understand or have a clue that God is initiating them. It's a funny little tension there. This is why in Romans 8, when it says you don't even know how to pray as you ought to pray, he says, but I gave you the facility to have a prayer language. So when you don't know how to pray, you pray in your prayer language and the Holy Spirit prays for you, through you, interceding according to the perfect will of God because it's his Holy Spirit that wants to reign inside of you. It implies we're holy because he wants to reign inside of you and it's the, the Holy Spirit of God. But listen to this. Ezekiel was set up for a very, very tough time. And he was, and the people were in captivity. Many of them had been led with fish hooks in their faces on ropes through the Ishtar Gate of Babylon for 70 years of captivity. Many would be born and die there. Some were dragged there and would die. Others would be born like Zerubbabel and then come back to the land. His happens to be a Babylonian name. And the name means out of Babel, by the way. But Ezekiel 3, this is the bonehead anointing. This is, we need this. We need a tender heart and we need a bonehead anointing. God says to Ezekiel, like Adam in stone, harder than flint, I've made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, if that wasn't enough, he said to me, son of man, receive into your heart most of my words that don't offend. No, all of my words that I speak to you and hear with your ears and go. Get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. Not an easy word. These are tough words. These are tough words to speak to my Jewish family. These are tough words. But they have to be spoken with a heart of compassion. Jew and Gentile alike has to be spoken. Here's what happens in Ezekiel 9. God was so furious at the ones who had remained in Jerusalem and had failed to go to be obedient to the words of the prior prophets and go into Babylon, they were being destroyed in Jerusalem. This was God dealing very mightily and heavily with his people. And so it was in Ezekiel 9 verse 8, while they, these were destroying angels, you can confirm it, were killing them. I was left alone and I fell on my face and cried out and said, Ah, oh Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? That's the heart of the prophet. That's the heart of the intercessor. This is not go get the people who refuse you. This is key for us. This is the alignment with the plans of heaven. And we have Jeremiah, chapter 9, which I would recommend you read all the way through chapter 9 of Jeremiah into the beginning of chapter 10. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. crazy. And Jeremiah was right there knowing what was going on. Brutal, brutal days. And he says, I just want to, I wish I had enough tears to weep for the people of God. And, and we're called to weep for the people of God in these days. Pray for them, encourage them, pray for protection, pray for the innocents, but we have to leave it to the Lord. We're not going to annul the work that he has planned in these days. It's, it's a tough work. Then we have Jesus. I don't want to miss this, by the way. Um, you know, we've talked about this many times in the past, but Jacob's troubles, Jeremiah 30, is key to these days. 
problems, the troubles that have yet to occur. Some of it speaks to Jewish people returning, or I, and I want to say Isaiah, oh gosh, what's the chapter? Isaiah 11 speaks to a return of Jews at the conclusion of the age from countries where we don't even know that there are any Jews there right now. It speaks to some interesting events that are implied, maybe prophetically implied in these days. We just need to be praying. And we need to be praying in the spirit in these days. Luke 19, Jesus says this. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. He was weeping over a city that was full of people who were going to say crucify him. Who were going to spit on him, laugh, mock him, challenge him and say, if you're the, if you're the savior, come down from the cross. He's weeping over the city. And as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that made for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Those things are still hidden from the eyes of the Jewish majority. There's not been an event, politically, militarily, or spiritually, that has changed that. These things are still hidden from their eyes, which is why the church is here. Primarily Gentile, but also there's a Jewish remnant in the church. It's why the church is here, that we could look at Isaiah 40 and it says, speak to my people and say, behold your God. The ones who would read Isaiah 40, who aren't the Jews, the Jews would read it thinking, how do he say, speak to who am I, who's speaking to who? The who is the church saying, speak to my people Israel, saying, behold. We're here for this purpose. We're not here to be intimidated by the Jewish people. First of all, most of them don't know their Bibles. Second is the ones who do, who don't know Jesus, there's a veil over their eyes. And God's taken that veil not only off the eyes of the Jewish believer, he's taken it off the, the, the Gentiles who, didn't, who, who had whacked Christian theology. That's the glory of this storyline, is that God could reveal things to us. It's our, this is revelation. The revelation of the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus when he returns. It's not the revelation of The revelation, the full plan of God, is Genesis to the book of Revelation. That's the whole revelation, and he's opened our eyes to see. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That man wasn't Jewish. He was blind. You were blind. You don't have, you don't have to be a Jew to be blind spiritually. A lot of the church are at least still blind. God's unwilling that any perish. And we, of course, know Jesus' heart, and he's perfect. And we have mere mortal Jeremiah and mere mortal Ezekiel. And, I, and again, I woke this morning with this from the Lord. Israel is not saved. I have so many notes. I, have, I've, I deleted as many notes as I have here from the whole week. I deleted them. Israel needs to get saved. That's the problem. It's not weapons. It's not strategies. They, they'll, they'll have those. God will give them. He's a warrior God. God will work with them, but, they, but they're working with him and against him at the same time. And we have to pray for the spirit of revelation to be upon the Jewish people in these days. And we have to pray that the church doesn't misrepresent what God's doing in Israel right now. It's a conundrum for us, actually. It's a prophetic conundrum. Daniel 8, this, here's, this will blow your minds, Daniel 8, and we actually, of course, you know, we, you know, we spend it, our teaching in Daniel, but look at Daniel 8 for a minute, in verse 9, going on to 12, and out of one of them came a little horn, out of the horns, this is a vision of the, you know, the armies at the end, it talks about the Antichrist, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, which is Israel, and it, the little horn, 
grew up to the host of heaven and he cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. There's some military and what well, looks like even spiritual, but it's not, success of the work of the Antichrist. It's going to be martyrs in these days. Loving not your life unto the death is not simply a phrase in the book of Revelation, how we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And he, the Antichrist, even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifices, which will have been restored at that time, and they're not doing that now, which means it has to be in the future. There's events that have to occur in the order that God has planned them. He says, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And this is sober. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn. Because of the sin of Israel, ongoing in the future times, some of that involves the empowerment of the enemy nation. And we think, how does that work? It's the whole story of the Old Testament. God called in the Midianites. God called in the Syrians. God called in the Egyptians. God called in the Mede-Persians. The whole storyline has to do with the safest place is holiness in the will of God and surrender. So our hearts are to be breaking for the plight of Israel. Our prayers are to be for their salvation. We know that. I love what Rabbi Paul, amazing, okay? First he condemned them. He was a religious man. He was a Pharisee. Then he gets knocked to the ground, and he gets radically saved, and he spends years just pressing in, trying to, trying to reconcile what he knew as being absolute truth to what was revealed to him on the Damascus Road and further. He's trying to process this. Listen to what he says. Romans 9. As it is the last verse. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling block and a rock of offense, you know who that is? That's Jesus. He's offensive to the Jewish people. They're taught against their Savior. They're one and only. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Then he goes on. Here's the rabbi. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer. This is Paul who gets the whole picture here. He wrote most of the New Testament. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, some of them. Not all, by the way, because they've abandoned even that, many of them, for secularism, for fatalism, for New Ageism, for false religion, for, for nonsense. There was a rave going on while Arab paratroopers were landing behind them and taking people from a rave in Israel. They don't all have a zeal for God. A lot of them are disgusted by what they've seen misrepresented as God by the ultra-orthodoxy, which quite frankly violates much of, the, much of the covenant. People go there, Jews go there thinking, I have a tug on my heart to go to Israel. And they go and they see what looks like Jewish religion. They go, I don't want it. I don't blame them. For I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness through deeds, through liturgy, through tradition, have not submitted to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to both the Jews and the Gentiles. It has to culminate there. And then he goes on, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jew and Gentile, only way. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. They all need to get saved. They all need Jesus. 
For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now we know that Romans 10, 11 were written by Paul in, as he was absent from Rome to combat replacement theology. Because the church was thriving because they were worshiping and trying to do the work of the God and the Jews had been kicked out of Rome and then uh, by Claudius and then before he was fully demonized, Nero invited the Jews back. The Jews come back into the church, the, Mess the Messianic Jews, and the church is saying, oh, we don't need the roots. We don't need the roots. We're doing fine. We've got the presence of God. Listen to our worship. And he's going, don't go there. He says, don't you go there. But he's saying here, he knows this. He says, the Jewish people need to get saved. And then he goes on, Paul tells us this, Rabbi Paul, how then shall they call on him who have not believed? How shall they believe in him and who they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? That's us. That's why you're here. And then he goes on, he's quoting Isaiah. I was found by those who did not seek me. I think that's the only verse in the New Testament that I could relate to. We were such hedonists. We were so living evil, so dark. I wasn't looking. I had friends who were more spiritual than me. A lot of them got into Eastern nonsense. But I, I wasn't looking for God. I could so relate to this verse. I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I stretched out my hands toward a disobedient and contrary. <coughs> Paul is quoting this during New Testament days. Jesus was already ascended up into heaven. Nothing has changed over the last 2,000 years. Many Jews, I believe, were saved in the camps. There were Christians in the camps praying with Jewish people. There's all sorts of things that we don't know that we're going to be surprised about when we get to, to, to heaven. But I'm just saying, overall, the climate of faith in the Jewish religion has not changed since this was written by Paul. I say then, have they, the Jews, stumbled that, we, that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And they want to see real Christianity in the saints. They want to see signs. Jesus said it. It wasn't a rebuke. He says, the Jews look for signs. They're looking for signs. Let's have some signs. These are going to be the days of outpouring. I've seen some things. I've seen some miracles in my life. I've seen angels. I've seen miraculous instantaneous healings. My, my batting average is terrible and the number of times I can count on two hands. I want more. This is why we're told to Ask the Lord for rain in the time of latter rain. That's that Shalume Adonai Matar Ba'et Malkosh. Ask. It's in Zechariah. He says, ask, and I'll pour these things out. But you got to ask. So, Lord, we ask now. We remind you again. God, pour out your spirit upon us even now. God, we want, God, we want to steward those things well, and to you be the glory. God, but we're asking you for an outpouring. God, we're asking you for the Joel outpourings with dreams and visions and fire, God. We're asking you for this, God, that we'll behave. God, like uh, that day I prayed over that prophet's tombstone and said, Lord, I want that, I'll behave. God, we'll behave. We, prom we vow to behave, God. We ask you to pour these things out upon us, God. Amen. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches to, for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. And he says, I'm, I'm blowing my own horn here for a minute. He goes, I magnify my ministry. It's hilarious. Ironic God sends the fishermen to the Jews who know the Bible and he sends the rabbi to the Gentiles who are worshiping demons. Funny God. 
Jehovah funny. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the Gentile world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? He says, you want to see a supercharge, a turbocharge to the presence of God and the people of God when the Jews come in? He says, pray for the Jews. We need the Jews. We need the Jews. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, because there's a fake news, which is replacement theology. It's a fake news. It's a lie and it's a blasphemy. What will their acceptance be? You, you should not be ignorant of this, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness, in part, not total, there's some Jews who know the truth, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, which hasn't happened yet. And so all, and I'm saying all here means all the remnant, because we know that. It's not every Jew. All Israel shall be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, Jewish Savior. He will turn away ungodliness from Yaakov, from Jacob. He's going to turn it away from the Jewish people. We're waiting. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So right now, Israel is sadly far from acknowledging, far from praying to, and far from submitting to their one and only Messiah. And that has to be the message of the church. That's the truth right there. That's the fix. That's the solution. That's the problem. Does that mean we don't support them financially? We don't give to ministries? We don't go there if we're called there and walk the land and pray? That we don't, but this is the reality. They need salvation. And they need to see saints who are really living in holiness. And they need to see saints standing beside them. At the conclusion of the age, Satan's not going to say, oh, I'm going after the Jews, but I'm not going to go after the Christians. It's going after, because you're at, you're at the table. You're, in essence, you're sitting at the Seder table as fully adopted, full, full rights, full birthrights. He's going to go after everyone who proclaims the name of Messiah. So we're there with him. So a lot of Jews are going to be coming in these days, and we know that. We know the nations won't be standing with Israel, but the praying saints will be standing, because we understand that those are our peeps. When one member suffers, we all suffer. Rabbi Paul says it this way. Walk in wisdom, Colossians 4, towards those who are outside. He doesn't make any differentiation here between the Jews and the Gentiles. Redeeming the time. And he says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. The formula is no formula. The formula is a prepared spirit. The word is in you. You're walking in truth. You're walking in the timing of God. You have an Issachar anointing for the coordinated incidences of life, which he's leading us into. We, you know, people, I'm seeing numbers, I'm dreaming dreams, I, I got all these correlations, I sat on the right airplane, I spoke to the right person. We, I mean, all these things are happening more frequently now, not because we're getting hyper-spiritual, but things are happening. God is actually moving in this realm. Don't miss it. And I've had a lot of those in my life, and, and I'm going to put them all down one of these days. I'm listing them now. But, uh, but, but I don't want to exaggerate. I don't want to miss them. You don't want to miss what God's doing in these days. Your life is, is a glorious testimony of someone being led by the Spirit. That's what he's called us to. Walk in wisdom and in the Spirit towards those who are outside. And let your speech always be with grace. Always. So we're not in and out of readiness. And then what does Paul say? What is part of the speech to every man? Paul says it earlier in Colossians chapter 1, him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That's our hope. I had a Jewish man on the phone two nights ago, and he said to me, 
you're just trying to get me saved. I said, yeah. <laughs> you got it. I love you. You've been my friend 45 years, but that's exactly the storyline. That's the goal. All the other stuff is, you know, we can talk about egg creams and pizza in New York and the toy business and all this stuff, all this mishigas. I said, we can do that. I said, but the most important thing is that you get saved. Oh, yeah, I want to get you saved. I'd love to see people get saved. It's spectacular. Israel is indeed lovely and loved by faithful God. The people and the land, because it's his, but the sin of the land from ultra-orthodoxy to hedonism, rave, secularism, intellectualism, arrogance, and relying on their own resources has never worked in the past once. And it never will. It never will. This is what the Lord spoke to the people in Ezekiel chapter 20. What you have in your mind shall never be. He goes, dang, it didn't even come out of my mouth. I didn't even utter this. He goes, well, I know what's going on in your mind. I want to be, I want to fit in. He says, I didn't call you to fit in. I called you to be a light in the world. He says, when you say, we'll be like the Gentiles, like the families in other countries. And you could say wood and stone. I don't have any wooden idols. It doesn't have to be wood and stone. What he's saying is demons, you're serving demons if you're not serving God. Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. God eventually will restore Israel. As I live, says the Lord, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. Those are the days we're coming into. Those are the days. The days we're coming into. He says this. As I live, surely, says the Lord, with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. I will bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face. They were already in the Babylonian captivity. He wasn't talking about that. Just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness in the land of Egypt, which is why he has put a uh, non-expiration date on the observance of Passover, so that, quite frankly, the Jew and the church would recognize and remember and call to remembrance the impossible deliverance of a faithful God to a stubborn people. I'm reminding you again, he says, I pleaded with you then, so I'm pleading. I will make you pass under the rod, which is a rod of correction, which was what was told to David, that he would correct his people with the blows of the nations, with the sons of men. I will, pass you, I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Read Deuteronomy 27 through 31. Tell me your takeaway. I will purge the rebels from among you. And those who transgress against me, I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, and they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This, then you will know, permeates Ezekiel 38 and 39, which I heartily recommend you look at and consider all the things that the people are going to know then. Then you will know, then you will know, then you will know. It's Ezekiel 37, 28. It says, and the people will know that I am the Lord when, then, it's basically one of those, when my sanctuary is in the midst. The world won't know till then the whole storyline, but we will know because we're getting there. So this is not an easy message. And I speak and teach it in the fear of the Lord. It's not an easy message. It's not a comforting message, but it's a true message. Keys of understanding the current conflict, some of the key verses that reveal to us uh, the critical Babylon component of the entire light versus darkness battle throughout all of the history of mankind. It started at Nimrod. It started in pride. It started with the Tower of Babel. And it ends in the book of Revelation. Revelation 18, 21 through 23. This is... The same people, this is Babylon, 
And that word becomes sort of like a nickname, a catchphrase for Assyria and other places. We know the enemy nations. You can read Ezekiel 38 and 39 and list the nations. If you Google who's, who's put and who's so-and-so, you can see some of the nations still have the same names. Some names have morphed over time. You can totally get it. You can get it from the teachings we've had in the past. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus, same way, in the same way with violence, the great city Babylon shall be in the future thrown down and shall not be found anymore. The sounds of, har of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of the millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. Meaning, meaning pleasure, entertainment, industry, what's well, not going to be heard anymore. It's going to be over. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you, the wicked city of deception I put in here anymore. And the voice of bridegroom and bride, the, the celebratory days are going to be over for you. Merchants were the, okay, shall not be heard in you anymore, for your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And that's the blanket of deception that we're seeing on every government right now. We're seeing it on ours. You know, we sit around as saints going, how could this be? It's, it's right here. It's sorcery. Sorcery. I've spoken many times in the Gog Ezekiel study that there's no true scriptural confirmation of a, of a revived Roman Empire leading the charge against Jerusalem in the final battles. It has to do with Babylon. The people who destroyed the temple, spoken about in Daniel 9.26, are the ones who are of the prince who is to come. They were provincials. They hired people from the surrounding provinces. They, they hired Arabs to destroy the temple. It tells you where the Antichrist is coming from. doesn't mean they're all evil. It doesn't mean many aren't going to come to salvation. There's, a lot of them are sons of Abraham. We need to pray for the people, but we see the gist of the story. Don't get stuck and wrapped around the axle on some of the particulars quite yet. So I've spoken many times. The Jewish people need to get saved through repentance and crying out to their Messiah. The surrounding nations with their ancient hatred now will, will be united in a common cause, the common cause of Islam. In the days of Ezekiel 38 and 39, when the band of nations was described as who's leading the charge against Israel, they weren't even united. They didn't have a common religion. They didn't have a common race. They were Northern Africa. They were the Middle East. They were all over the map. But the thing that's in common now is Islam. We need to pray for the Islamic people. Takeaway, our safety is only in the truth of God and in God's great mercy, walking and living and praying in the spirit, who, and that spirit is the spirit of truth that keeps us from wasted time, wasted conversations, even religious wasted conversations, poor decisions, compromise, having our hearts failing, requiring God's course correction upon our lives in these days. We don't want to go there. We want to run with what we know. We keep our eyes on Jesus. Things are not yet clear. Some of them will be made clear now as we progress. Things are clearer now than they were 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. 30 years ago, they're clearer now. Don't check something off unless you're fully filled. They are an eternal truth, and they assure us of God's merciful monitoring of our lives. Listen to this. I love this. This is for us now, Isaiah 30. 
For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the uncomfortable refining work I've added here, the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is a promise of active guidance, course correction. This is the way walking it whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. That's cool. That's exactly what we want. It's not that we're perfect. He's perfect. He's our shepherd. You will, and he says here, I have this. Remember Gideon when, he, when the anointing was going to come upon him? First thing the angel says is go and take down your father's idols. It, was, it wasn't just his own house cleaning. It was dad's house cleaning. But he says you will also defile the coverings of your images of silver and the ornaments of your molded images of gold, you will throw them away as an unclean thing. You will say to them, get away, after which there's a promise of fullness that we want to pull down now, living the way we're living. And that's not going to work. Then he will give you the rain for your seed, with which you sow the ground, and bread of the increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will feed in large pastures. The book ends really well on an amazingly happy note. But we have to get through a tough season that we're walking into right now. And don't let our hearts fail. And all of Amos to great and sober read, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there's calamity in the city, who did it? Will not the Lord have done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servant, the prophets. And we're called to speak in truth. Thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus, that you would call us in these days. Thank you, God, for salvation. Thank you for rescue. Thank you for course correction. Thank you for revelation. Thank you for understanding. Thank you for uh, patiently working with us day in and day out. God, that you were jealous and zealous. Lord, that word in Hebrew is the same word, kana. God, you are jealous and will do something about it. And we say yes to you, God. We're out here saying yes to the Lord, that you would pour your spirit out on your people. You'd pour your spirit out on us in these days. God, we'd only have eyes for you, Jesus. Only have eyes for you. God, and if anything I spoke this morning was inaccurate, you'd delete it. And what was accurate and true, God, it would build up a wall of faith in our, in our conscience today, God. That we would be uh, further dedicated to the causes of Christ in these great days that you've called us here, God, that you could be glorified in our lives. And as the saints unmute their microphones so we could uh, proclaim a hearty amen, God, that we are in agreement with you. God, we say, your redeemed people, God, we say amen. 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 Is anybody out there saying yes to God?